The Pat Kenny Show with MasterCard. Share an extraordinary experiences all over the world with priceless cities at priceless.com. This is News Talk. U.S. President Donald Trump will fulfill one of the goals of his presidency today when Washington, D.C. marks Independence Day with a military parade. It'll be the first in the U.S. capital since the 1991 Gulf War. Uh, let's have a listen to what's going on stateside on this, the 4th of July. In recent years, 4th of July on the National Mall has been a tribute to universal American themes. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, a star-spangled civic hymn. This year, by design, it will be much more about him. And I'm going to be here, and I'm going to say a few words, and we're going to have planes going overhead, the best fighter jets in the world, and other planes too. And we're going to have some tanks stationed outside. Two tanks and two infantry fighting vehicles arrive by train today, power washed before being trucked to the mall, where they will stay put to prevent their treads from tearing up city streets. Air Force One and Marine One will fly over, as will a B-2 bomber, F-22 fighter jets, Osprey helicopters, and the Blue Angels, the largest concentration of military might in Washington since the end of the first Gulf War. President Trump will speak from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial before White House-approved VIPs, including Republican Party donors. Mr. Trump has wanted a big military parade in Washington since attending France's Bastille Day in 2017. I don't know, we're going to have to try and top it, but we had a lot of planes going over and we had a lot of military might, and uh, it was really a beautiful thing to see. Mike Leturst is with the National Park Service. This is the first time that we've seen something of this size and this scale at the Lincoln Memorial on the 4th of July. Taxpayers will spend more for the president's appearance and staging, more for the military maneuvers, more for additional security on the National Mall. Taxpayers, however, will not spend an extra penny on the longer fireworks display, twice as long as in years past, thanks to a donation from two fireworks companies. Uh, So that's what's happening in the United States today. And indeed, it was France and America who paved the way by inaugurating national days of celebration following the revolutions in the late 18th century. In both countries, the shared narrative of struggle and overcoming tyrannical monarchy constituted something of a binding glue to unite the nation, something that was used to good effect when the centenaries of 1776 and 1789 occurred in the wake of the US Civil War and the Paris Commune respectively. Now here in Ireland many of our commemorations are contested. For centuries now rival groups have commemorated victories of orange over green and vice versa. In more recent times commemorations have seen rival communities in Northern Ireland mark triumphs and injustices in their communities. However this was not always the case and the little known history of shared commemorations is a topic that our resident historian UCD's Dr Conor Mulva is here to talk to us about today as we enter into that most contested period in Irish commemorations, marching season. Connor, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Now, uh, today is the 4th of July, so let's start in the United States before we return to Ireland. Uh, what, in your opinion, makes the 4th of July a successful, and uh, up to this anyway, a broadly unifying day in the US commemorative calendar? I think in simplest terms, the reason that the 4th of July works as a commemoration in the United States is because it has a clear and well-defined other. And that other is Britain. The 
1776 narrative, the independence narrative, is about struggle against a tyrannical oppressor. It's about rejecting monarchy. It's about setting up a brave new constitution and a and everybody agrees, Democrat and Republican. Democrat, Republican. You know, it's it's less problematic than Thanksgiving Day in terms of native populations. It's less problematic than Civil War commemorations in terms of race. Um, Veterans Day. Veterans Day has pacifists, anti-Vietnam protesters. There's all those problems. So when we look at the 4th of July, it's not perfect, but it's the simplest and most unifying commemoration that they have. And, and one of the things there is it's it's malleability. And we have that with, with uh, 1916 here mm. as well. 1916 can mean different things at different times. Yeah. Now, now, what about Trump? And uh, it looks like it's part of his re-election process that, you know, it'll make him seem good. The militarism. I mean, I yeah. saw one of the reporters on, I think it was MSNBC, like just so full of joy and excitement at the notion of standing beside a tank. Well, for someone with bone spurs, I suppose it is notable how uh, keen he seems to be to rub shoulders. It's called overcompensating, isn't it? I wonder. But, uh, do you know, it's been absent from the analysis I've heard so far today. But my worry is that this is less to do with November of 2020 and more to do with US-Iranian relations. Um, There's a historical concept pioneered by um, a historian here in Ireland, John Horn, um, called cultural mobilisation and cultural demobilisation. And cultural mobilisation, the, the example that John Horn used when he pioneers this theory, is actually America and Japan in the Second World War. It's how America creates an enemy out of a people that many Americans at that point had never really heard of. And he looks at cartoons, he looks at simianization of the Japanese, brutalization of the Japanese, and basically telling the American people no more than the British were told during the First World War, this is the Hun, this is your enemy, you have to go and fight him in the trenches. He threatens your home, your family, he's going to rape your wife. This is the ultimate enemy and and demonising this people. And then what Horn looks at is the, the flip side of this, which is cultural demobilisation. After the war, after dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to go back to the US example, how do they tell the American people, actually, do you remember those Japanese people we told you were horrible and terrible? They were actually under a magic spell of the emperor. They were innocents. We need to make them our, their, our mm. friends because the Chinese have gone communist and Korea is an issue and the world is a different place than it was in 1941. Mind you, Pearl Harbor and the uh, nature of that sudden attack oh, yes. and the destruction caused on the day um, mm. was enough to get Americans... Oh, certainly. But but this broader cultural process of, of telling a people who their enemy is and who they should gear up towards. And, you know, the sabre-rattling that we're seeing regarding Iran at the moment, the reconciliation we're seeing with North Korea is a flip side of that. Um, you know, it, it is quite troubling. You know, Donald Trump in fairness to him, hasn't gone to war with anyone so far in his presidency. Uh, less drone strikes than Obama carried out, mm-hmm. etc. But the, the danger is that he's he's looking towards Iran and looking towards a conflict. Now, many of the historic commemorations in Irish history have traditionally exacerbated the tensions rather than eased them in Ireland. Mm-hmm. We're all familiar with uh, the Orange Order's commemoration of the 12th. But uh, before those of a nationalist background might point the finger, you say we should look to some equally divisive commemorations in the nationalist calendar. Well, to anyone listening in from Westmead, Longford, Cavan kind of region, particularly on the border mm. there, in the small town of Finay, there's a bridge. And on that bridge in 1913 was erected a statue to the ominously titled Miles the Slasher. Who was Miles the Slasher? Miles the Slasher was um, a Catholic during the Confederation of Kilkenny in the 1640s who um, was celebrated for his... Uh, slashing abilities of the uh, colonising planters um, around 
the uh, Westmead Longford Cavan area and essentially from about 1906 onwards uh, advanced nationalists the IRB fixed in on Miles the Slasher as a figure rather than being a victim in Irish history like you know maybe Wolf Tone you know has a, a tragic end Robert Emmett has a tragic end Miles the Slasher was someone who massacred thousands or not maybe hundreds or dozens of of, um, of, of planters planters in, in that particular period and he was seen as someone to lionise so in the same way that the 12th of July has a triumphalist um, defeat of our enemy kind of thing this was a celebration of an individual and I pick it out because he's he's local to an area he's Obviously, you know, he didn't die there. He didn't have any tragic end. He killed loads of people there. He, you know, his, mm. his moniker alone of Miles the Slasher makes him out to be a horrifically bellicose and bloodthirsty individual. Now, you refer to the role that commemorations played in mobilising Irish nationalists towards violent action in the years prior to the First World War. Yes. Now, tell us about the Manchester Martyrs and how those commemorations riled up nationalists in Ireland in, in 1913. Remember Alan Larkin and O'Brien. This was the way that the IRB, again, the Rising was planned and, and executed by the IRB, not the Irish Volunteers per se. They were riling up the nationalist community in the years 1912, 1913, in the hope that they could emulate the Carsonites, that they could found themselves uh, an armed paramilitary that could, could really assert Irish rights. And one of the ways they did this was to inspire a young generation of, of particularly boys growing up in the Fianna Aaron and groups like this, which were IRB backed and founded, and said, look to the heroes of our past who have died for Ireland. This is your destiny. OK, it's, it's uh, interesting looking back on it now, but the, even the King of England, King George the Fifth mm. was spooked into yes. thinking that Ireland was on the verge of civil war. So I gave a I gave a conference paper in Paris just last week on this topic, and the the question I asked was how close did Ireland come to civil war on the eve of the First World War in 1914, and this stems from a speech that George V gave on the 21st of July 1914, where he said, "For months we have watched with deep misgivings the course of events in Ireland. Today the cry of civil war is on the most responsible and sober-minded of his, of my people." Um, and in doing that, he was saying, you know, Ireland has reached a, a level now. And this is just before the Irish volunteers had armed at mm-hmm. Oath. It's actually just a week before it. But what he said is, essentially, there are two factions pitted against each other in Ireland. They're also pitted against the Crown forces. And both the Prime Minister Asquith and the monarch were worried that they were going to preside over the first civil war in England since 1642. Now, in this atmosphere of division, where there any people calling for a kind of shared commemorations? Yeah, it was it was very niche at the time um, and it wasn't something that was, you know, very loud in the discourse. But I think it is important as, you know, we're so familiar with the language of peace and reconciliation now in the post-1998 generation and time that we live in um, that people like Owen McNeil and Roger Casement, Irish Catholics who grew up in the northernmost tip of Antrim uh, in the Glens district, which was very religiously mixed. It was culturally diverse. It had very close links with Scotland. They were the ones that first began calling for reconciliation. They said, you know, if, if we're to assuage the Unionists, if we're to create a united Ireland, we're not going to do it by force. So in many ways, they were doing the exact opposite to people like Bulmer Hobson in the IRB who said, let's found on Irish volunteers. Let's tell young boys in Dublin that they need to emulate the sacrifices yeah. of the Manchester So, so what shared event do they want to commemorate? So Owen McNeil, uh, I'll give you one quote on this. Owen McNeil was at an Ulster Fesh of the Gaelic League held at Tombridge, which itself is a, an interesting uh, site in terms of 1798. And while he was there, he reminded his audience that they were not too far from Ben Burb, where the big um, Confederate victory had occurred in 1646. And he said, 
and I quote that we might look forward to a time when many that didn't agree with us now i.e. the Unionists will be ready to join in celebrating the memory of the Battle of Ben Burb they loudly applauded then I said perhaps we could also look forward to a time when we will be able to join hands with them in celebrating a great event in their history the siege and relief of Derry there was lots of loud and applause for that. So this was the way that Owen McNeil was saying, if we can celebrate our history, we also need to celebrate the history of other people who live on this island. And Roger Caseman went a step further. He said, Clontarf, so he was, this was in 1914, coming up to the ninth centenary, uh, the 900 oh, centenary of, of yeah. Clontarf. And he said, Clontarf should unite all Irish men in an effort to wordly commemorate achievement that bound all Ireland together on its own shores. And then he also said, the Olympic Games of 1916, which were planned for Berlin, never happened for obvious reasons should unite a restored Irish chivalry to carry our banner together to the shores of a friendly Europe assembled in peaceful rivalry so this was this idea that you know the Irish volunteers had awakened a spirit of Irish masculinity and this was to be celebrated in terms of mm. physical culture martial culture and they should join with the unionists and, and be one Irish nation it's now, very much the United Irishman concept In, in recent years uh, post Good Friday Agreement we've uh, made some progress on shared commemorations and yeah. nine, the, the First World War the Great War so called has been the focus very much so I I very much went through school in this period the, the you know I started secondary school the same year the, the Good Friday Agreement was signed and from my perspective growing up through that very much the First World War became a way in which the the nationalist or the southern community or the Catholic community in Ireland whatever way people want to describe it um, began to look at their shared history at instances where it wasn't about division but was about shared sacrifice um, and I think key milestones on this are the opening of the Peace Park at Messine in 1998 um, in more recent times Mary McAleese's visit to Gallipoli in 2010 was a key moment in this um, but speaking to, to friends of mine in Belfast one of the things that I suppose has experienced a backlash here is from the unionist community particularly working class communities in East Belfast who've turned around and said you know, we had one thing, we had the psalm, we have, you yeah. know, unless you're going to claim the 12th of July, we had that. And now you're trying to, what they call is green, the First World War. So there has been in more recent years saying, you know, we just want something where we can celebrate on our own. And they like that division. So but, it's an interesting But there one, yeah. always seems to be a bit of a row because there's that uh, wall, the necrology wall. In Glasnevin, yes. Which should honour uh, all the dead, irrespective. Yeah. British soldiers shot in 1916 as yeah. well as volunteers who died. Yes. Um, so this takes as its inspiration the necrology wall to the Vietnam War. Now what the Vietnam Memorial in Washington is he doesn't have is the names of all the Vietnamese combatants and civilians etc. The difference in the innovation that was put in by Glasnevin Trust when they installed that wall was they would exactly like I would say like the proclamation cherishing all the children of the nation equally and I had read the files of British soldiers who were from the island of Ireland who had died during the rising and their fathers from places like Antrim and Armagh writing down to Dublin Castle and saying my son is buried in a shallow grave in, in Grange Gorman or whatever else or in, in, a, in a plot I want to take him home to Antrim can you help me with the funeral expenses for things like this and it reminds me of something that the Turks did in terms of their reconciliation and their Europeanisation after the First World War and Kamal Ataturk he actually didn't say this but let's indulge me for a second he didn't say this he didn't say because I was reading this last night and I found it very moving so I I went to an excellent paper by Stuart Ward who's professor in uh, University of Copenhagen on this and essentially his foreign minister said it in 1934 but put it in Ataturk's mouth to make it sound more impressive but 
you know, a lot of commemoration involves a bit of blurring of the edges. So what supposedly Atterk said, but actually his foreign minister or a speechwriter wrote, those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now living in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets, referring to the British and the Turks. Uh, those who lie side by side in this country of ours. So again, claiming territory, but also saying it's peaceful and reconciliatory territory. You, the mothers, who sent your sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are at peace. After having lost their lives in this land, they've become our sons as well. So this is very much this spirit of shared sacrifice and shared suffering that leads towards reconciliation. Um, And it's from 1998 onwards, as I've shown in the period before the First World War, there are instances where people clutch at this as a, as a way to drive reconciliation. And I would argue with the First World War, it has worked in Ireland. Like, you know, it, it was figures that really started to push this. Joe Duffy, Gay Byrne, Kevin Myers, um, in academic circles, people like John Horne, that began to say, listen, Ireland had 200,000 people in the First World War. Somewhere between 35 and 49,000 of them didn't come home. We need to look at this and we need to look at those sacrifices. Um, and that's something that I think can reconcile communities. But I was just taking the, the bus home from Donegal last weekend and I saw the flags to the paratroopers up in um, in Enniskillen and places like that. So equally, commemoration, just like we're seeing in, in Washington DC today, can be used to rile people up as well as to calm them down. And I think it's, it's interesting just to look at how commemoration is used as a tool of statecraft to play on our emotions as citizens and make us make us love, make us hate, make us think differently about things. So it's, it's interesting for us to be, I suppose, alive to the, the abilities of that. Dr. Conor Mova, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Pat. 